It's the Halloween you episode. You plan this crap and you look at I, me like Nikki. <laughs> what makes you think I plan that? You planned that. It's the Halloween episode <laughs> of the Cold Oatmeal Podcast. <laughs> okay, keep laughing. Okay, it is the Halloween episode of the Cold Oatmeal Podcast. <laughs> this is Matt Rash with the Rest Strategies team. We are in the studio. Um, and we are we have a great guest, Marty Link. She's an author. She lives up in Traverse City. She's a reporter now for the record eagle but 13 years ago wrote a book called when evil comes to goodheart about a gruesome murder of six family members in a cottage in goodheart um still unsolved but we talk about that and other things with her on the cold oatmeal podcast yep i got it all we got so what do you want to do now was why don't we do this at the beginning of the Kurt episode? Okay. We'll put get Kurt put Kurt to bed. Nighty night, Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> and there's the intro. <laughs> so creepy. That was incredibly creepy. <laughs> Welcome to Cold Oatmeal, a podcast by the Rest Strategies team about PR and public affairs. Really. I was distracted staring at Joe's cold oatmeal. Yeah, well, it's here. He's got it on his desk. It's always here. It's always here. And by the way, the the ratio of like fruit to disgusting is like one to ten. It's got some disgusting stuff and some fruit. Yeah, there's nothing disgusting. One part fruit. What what in there is disgusting? I don't even know what's in it, but it it looks like cucumber mash and maybe a couple of chopped apples. Did you have Burger King for breakfast? What was your. Say that! Okay, welcome back. This is the Cold Oatmeal Podcast, and it's it's not technically Halloween. We're coming out. We're coming. Halloween's coming up in a couple of days. Spooky season. So yeah. we wanted to wanted to celebrate. This is Matt Resch of Resch Strategies. We are a public affairs and a public relations firm in uh, Lansing, Michigan, downtown Lansing. Yeah, last Michigan. I checked. Yeah. Last mm-hmm. I checked. Um, you can find us at reststrategies.com. We are on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook at Resch Strategies. Um, all of these podcast episodes can be found on our website, but uh, also Apple, Spotify, all those other places. Check it out. Uh, rate, review, share with your friends. There's good stuff happening here. We want, we want people to know, right? Absolutely. Share and it far and wide. If you're in, and if you're a, a Twitter person, the Cold Oatmeal Podcast also has a Twitter account at Cold Oatmeal Pod. But we don't know who runs it. Still, to this day. Maybe appropriate on this unsolved mystery. I was say, another yeah, maybe mystery. Maybe we should put Marty on, on the case to figure out who runs the Cold Oatmeal podcast. I bet I can figure it out. You think so? Yeah. Okay. So uh, appropriate for Halloween, we have a bit of a skeleton crew here in, in the room. <laughs> <laughs> um, dad jokes are just it. on point. What? Punny. <laughs> uh, can't win. Uh, Anna, uh, Nick, and Stephanie are not with us today, but around the room, we've got Nikki O'Mara, Laura Beal, Carly Buell, Joe Beshi. Okay. Yeah. So I was debating after last episode whether or not it was worth ever doing another episode. I mean, Kurt, it was Bar- pretty great. Kurt Berryman is kind of, was the white whale of the podcast, literally the title of the, of the episode. We've been trying to hunt him down for years to get on the podcast. Finally did it. It was good. It was a good one. Everyone loves Kurt. It was awesome. And I wasn't even here. I loved listening <laughs> to it. <laughs> I, I had FOMO listening yeah. to it that I missed it in person. Well, I, I won't. I re- got booted. I got voted off the island. What do you mean? You weren't here? 
for that episode. Oh, that's right. The room was too full. just sitting in my office alone. <laughs> did you listen to it? No. <laughs> I wasn't on it, so why? <laughs> why did you listen? Thanks for the support, Carly. Wait, um, you helped create the new intro yeah, about it and you intro. weren't even on it? I came in after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, this is the crew we got, and we are going to be talking. Sorry to disappoint you. No, this is good. This is a good crew. This is good. You know, Nick and Stephanie here are always just amazing. They take us in places, weird places. <laughs> they That's do. good. <laughs> this, is, this is the podcast on point crew. And we are going to talk to uh, a reporter, Marty Link. Um, she is. She grew up in Michigan, Southeast Michigan, born in Detroit, went to Michigan State uh, for journalism school and has been a, a freelance writer and reporter for a number of years. She's written a handful of books, um, but her first book came out in 2008 and it chronicles a case, a, a cold case, an unsolved mystery of a murder of a family uh, from Southeast Michigan in their cottage in Goodhart, Michigan, which is uh, maybe 20 minutes north of Harbor Springs up on the Tunnel of Trees. Beautiful, beautiful little place. Horrible crime, unsolved. And the book um, I read a number of years ago, and I thought this would be Halloween. Let's let's get some spooky stuff. Let's talk to Marty and figure out who who killed the Robinson family. They should have brought us in sooner. Yeah. Yeah. Because we figured it out. I think I think we're, we've all been watching or at least starting to watch murders and uh, only, only murders, murders in the building podcast. Mm-hmm. I think that this. I think maybe we could either do a spinoff or if we just run, run out of guests, maybe we should just go start solving Lansing crimes. Murders in Lansing. A, we could. a documentary yeah. of the case. That would be cool. We could. I'm into it. Okay. We don't have enough going on. No. <laughs> We're not busy. We do run a business What's here. Work? <laughs> okay. okay. It's Marty Link. Okay, Marty Link, thanks so much for being with us on the Cold Oatmeal Podcast. It's our Halloween episode, and so we thought this would be a great topic to to talk about on, on Halloween. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me. Uh, and as you can probably imagine, I still think about the Robinson family all the time, not just in the fall, um, not just at Halloween, but, you know, I think about them often. Yeah. Well, let me, before I ask you a question, because the, the five of us here in the room, and of course you, we've we have the benefit of having just recently read or reread the book and so know the story. But for the folks who, um, who don't know the story, I'm going to, I want to ask you just kind of recap the story in, in a second. But, um, you know, when I was talking with you and invited you to do this, I have always had this story in the back of my head because I have uh, good friends who have a, a cottage up in Goodhart, And a few years, well, it was maybe 10 years ago. Uh, they invited my wife and myself up just for a weekend, and they let us just have the place for, for a couple of days. And your book was on the coffee table of their cottage, <clears throat> which I think is an interesting um, tourism attraction to, to put the book there <laughs> in the heart of Goodhart in the woods. And so I think, oh, I got a couple of days. I'm going to read this book. And I, I was I was terrified. <clears throat> I think I got done with the. I was like halfway through and I'm in the woods. I'm thinking I could be this place could be built right where this is. I have no idea. I was it, it spooked me out. So that's why I, yeah. I've had this book and this story in the back of my head ever since I, I read that then. And I think a lot of people who have heard the story can't get it out of their mind. And so before we go any farther, walk us through a little bit. What is the story of the Robinsons? Robinsons? Sure. Yeah. So the Richard Robinson family, it was Richard and Shirley. They were married for 20 years and they had four children, one daughter and three sons. And uh, they were from Lathrop Village outside of Detroit near Southfield. And they had a cottage in Goodhart. One of the real 
signature cottages of Goodhart built out of logs that slowly get smaller in size, um, have stone fireplaces on the inside. There's a number of them in Goodhart and the Robinsons owned one of them. And in 1968, the entire family was murdered and nobody was ever arrested, tried, convicted for the crime. And I think the reason it sits with people so many years later, a half a century later, is that in Michigan, we have this idea of up north being our away place, especially if you were raised in a city, is up north is where you go to get away from the stress of the city or crime or worries. And yet this awful crime happened in a place that we think of as being pristine. So that's just kind of, I guess, the essence of the story and why I think it remains um such a memory in so many people's mind so we all have some lots of questions and theories that we've been cooking up here as we've been talking over the last couple days but before we get into that um i was curious this this was your first book correct the first book that you wrote It, it was yeah had you always wanted to write a book or was it this story that made you think i need to write this book well You know, I had heard this story. I had heard the announcement of this story on the radio when I was a little kid. And I was eight years old when I heard about it. And the same age of the only girl who was murdered. Um, Susan was also eight. So it sort of stuck with me since childhood. And then fast forward to adulthood, I was trying to break out as a writer. And I was writing a lot of personal essays. And they were all getting rejected despite the fact that I'd been a journalist for a while and thought that I, you know, somewhat knew what I was doing. And a friend of mine said, you know, not the typical writer advice, uh, write what you know. He said, you know, why don't you write what you watch on TV? And at that time, I was a big fan of court TV. We don't have that anymore, but I used to watch trials on court TV all the time when my children were small. And so I looked at him and I said, you know, there is this one case and it was the Robison case that I had wondered about forever. I had tried to find a book on the case. A book didn't exist. And so I think essentially I wrote the book that I wanted to read. Well, I think many people are very glad that you did. It's, yeah. a, it's, it's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> is it, is it hard to write kind of a crew try, you know, a true crime story? I mean, this was 40 years. It was, you wrote, it came out in 2008, right? So you were you're writing it a few years before that, but 40 years earlier, this crime had been committed. Is it hard to do that when you're, you said you watch crime in your court TV, you're familiar with what cops and law enforcement can do now to solve things and kind of to look at the facts of what happened back then and and wonder, why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do this? Yeah. And, you know, I, I do have some empathy for law enforcement and all the people who second guess them, especially in a high profile case like this one. But when I was researching the Goodhart story, nobody knew who I was. And so it didn't matter if I was filing FOIA requests or going to the sheriff's office and asking if I could see the file and that kind of thing. Nobody knew who I was and they were happy to provide, you know, whatever documents were in the public domain that I asked for. That's gotten a little harder since I've written two more true crime books and a couple of memoirs and I, you know, work as a journalist, that's gotten a little more difficult. Um, People know what I'm doing now when I show up in a town and ask (laughs) for the records on their most famous murder case. Um, But, you know, I had the luxury of both time and 
anonymity when I researched the Good Heart story. Um, so I talked to, you know, I traveled to Good Heart a number of times. I camped in the State Forest campground nearby in Petoskey because there's really no place to stay. If you're a starving writer in Good Heart, it's a rather expensive place to visit. Um, and so it was difficult. And the the method that I used to put that book together has kind of stayed with me. And that is that I develop a chronology just of what happened when and what my source is for that information, whether it's an interview with somebody, a police report, a court document. Um, you know, I just do this chronology. And then when I'm actually writing the book and, you know, putting skin on the bone, so to speak, I have that chronology to refer back to. And I know my facts are solid because I've already documented them. So that, that method that I developed, or I guess that I, you know, by trial and error in the Good Heart story has served me well, I think, over, over writing other projects. And how long did it take you really to pull all of that together? Because you are going to so many places, interviewing so many people, putting it, you know, chronologically in order. And then you also were um, giving us some details about, you know, the suspects and the conversations they were having. How long did it really take you to put all of that together? Uh, I think the whole process took about two and a half years and probably a year of research before I started writing anything. And then I would start to write and, and if there was a blank to fill in, I would do that. But I would say about two and a half years it took me to research and write the book. I wish that I could do that. And I wish that I could do a book in two and a half years now because yeah. with every book, it has taken me longer and longer and longer. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if I'm getting slower or <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> was it hard um, but, to get some of that information out of people or was it, were they pretty willing to give it up? I wanted to ask you, that, um, were the, were the, was law enforcement defensive? Yeah. Like, is, were they, some might think, who's this r- reporter, this, this, this writer who's second guessing yeah, what we, what we're doing. Yeah. Um, not at all. And I think maybe one of the reasons is initially the people that I spoke with in law enforcement, like Sheriff Wallen, he never investigated the case originally. You know, he, he wasn't, he was a kid when, when all of that happened, he inherited it. And so, you know, I don't, any, any criticism that a reporter would bring to the investigation would probably be leveled on the, the original you know, the original detectives and not the ones who inherited the case. So really not at all. And when I went to the Emmett County Sheriff's Office and asked for the file, um, the sheriff, I was directed to the sheriff. His name is Pete Wallen. He was um, invited me into his office. He was very accommodating. And he said, you know, so many people over the years have been interested in this case. And we have fulfilled so many FOIA requests that we just put the entire case file on a, um, on a CD now. So for 50 bucks, here you go. Here's a CD with everything on it. And I just found that amazing. It's it's sort of, you know, I thought, well, who were these, who were all these other people who were interested? Some of them were journalists. Some of them were writers. I think there were a couple of fiction writers and a lot of them were just people who grew up in Northern Michigan and wanted to know what happened to the Robinsons. So it did tell me though that I was on the right track that if I was interested in something, you know, if I wondered about something, there were probably a lot of other people who wondered about it too. So for our listeners who didn't actually read the book, I feel like we should read the book yet. 
they'll, they'll, the go, they'll, yes. go, they'll go get the book after yes this. our podcast has <laughs> wide acclaim um so for those who haven't read it yet what actually did happen to the robinsons because we're we're talking about like they got murdered but what actually happened right yeah so they um so richard robinson had this business idea that he thought was going to make him wealthy and it was interesting. It was kind of like a supply chain idea, things that we take a grant, granted for today, like central purchasing and things like that he had come up with back in the 60s. And he thought that this thing was just about ready to, you know, hit the market, hit, hit the business world. And this was the first summer that he took his entire family north to the cottage and they were going to stay there all summer. Keep in mind, this is 1968 when cell phones were in existence. Many of the cottages there didn't have a phone. And so the Robinsons were killed and a month went by or nearly a month before their bodies were discovered. They were all shot. Two, um, two weapons were used, according to the autopsy reports, and it was a Beretta handgun and uh, a rifle. And the rifle was unusual. It was an AR-7 that could be um, broken down. And so there was a theory that the killer had come to the cottage by water because the cottage was right, you know, right on, right on the water and easy access for somebody if they came to the cottage by water. I don't know if, if that happened or not. To this day, people don't know whether that happened or not. They did find footprints outside the cottage. Um, the cottage had a really interesting door lock and you would lock the door and pull a rawhide string to the inside of the cottage and then the door would be locked from the outside and investigators found that it was indeed locked. So whoever came in and killed the Robinsons came in through a back door. There were bullet holes in a window. So the family had been shot at from outside the cottage and you know you can only imagine it was just complete pandemonium you're 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 in your cottage and you're getting ready to go on a trip and all of a sudden you know you're shot at by a rifle through the window and then investigators said the killer came in through the back door and finished off the family with a handgun to this day no one knows if it was one shooter two shooters, multiple shooters, um, that has been a sticking point to closing the case. I would say that has been the sticking point to closing the case. Okay, Most so think, people have. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So we got, we've got some questions, but before we get into these questions, because okay. as you're talking, I'm, I'm remembering these questions I had as I was reading. The okay. cottage, there is, have you been to the site of where the cottage is? Was? I have, yes, yeah, several times, yeah. And is there anything there now? Who owns that property? There's nothing there now. It's owned by one of the um, adjacent landowners who has another cottage and who did not live there at the time of the murders. Uh, it's just an open space and um, it's a little bit eerie. You can't yeah. see the location from the road. It, there's a really steep drive to get down to where a series of cottages are. And you just, even today, you feel like you're cut off from the rest of the world. So I can only imagine what it was like in 1968. Is the foundation still there or do they dig the whole thing, dig everything out? The whole thing was dug out. They brought in a bulldozer and dug three feet down and had to remove dirt from under and sand from underneath the cottage because it just reeked of death. I mean, it was oh just, my gosh. just imagine a family of six inside a cottage for a month 
and the police report that I read said that the killer or someone turned up the heat in the cottage. So, I mean, it's just, it's just horrible. Yeah. Okay. So not to spoil anything. I think we were probably safe with spoilers on a, on a book that's been 13, 13 or so years <laughs> out there, but so uh, Joe, not Joe Beshi, who's our producer, but Joe Scalaro, who was <laughs> the quote unquote right-hand man of um, Mr. Robinson. He is like all, all fingers point in, in his direction um, as, as the person at least responsible for this. Correct. Is that that's in, in the afterword of the book. That's kind of where you've, you've landed on what you think happened. Correct. So my, yeah. my, my question is, did, did you ever find any evidence or proof that he had been to the cottage before? Because you're describing a place that's wilderness. And for someone who had not ever been there, um, at least according to the timestamp of like when he was possibly traveling up there that day, it didn't seem like he had a lot of time. And it, it feels like a very intricate thing to have to go do quickly and turn around and get back home if you've never been there before. Had he ever been to the cottage? Do, do we know this? Yes, he had been there at least once the summer before. Okay. Uh, and then he also was one of the first people who drove up to the cottage after the after the murders were discovered and was interviewed um, by the then sheriff and seemed to know exactly where he was going to get to Emmett County as well. Okay. So, But yeah, he had been to the cottage once before. So talk a little bit about Joe. <clears throat> why, what is, what, what, what's his story and why do you think this yeah. is on his yeah. doorstep? So, so I do just have to say one thing that one thing that when I read other accounts or newspaper accounts or historical accounts of this case, um, they call, they call Joe Scalero, uh, Richard Robinson's employee. And I don't know why that gets to me, but it does. Because all the all the information I read was he was never employed by Richard. He was a subcontractor. And and while that doesn't probably really matter in the scheme of things, I just want to make sure he doesn't get any <laughs> he doesn't get any kudos that he didn't earn. So he wasn't an employee, he was a subcontractor. He was a salesman for Richard Robinson's advertising agency. And he was married, had a couple of kids, and in his spare time he was a tournament trap and skeet shooter. He was an excellent marksman. Um, he had a military background and he, um, he had won competitions, um, marksmanship competitions. And he also had a record of back then what they called check kiting and what now we would just say, you know, writing bad checks or, or fraud. Um, you know, he had a, he had a record for that. So he was in with Richard on this idea of a central purchasing, some kind of central purchasing um, new business that they were going to develop together. And there's, there's some evidence that he got sham investors to convince Richard that this thing was really going to happen. I don't know what the motive was behind that. It must have had something to do with some kind of financial mismanagement. That's the kind of detail that's really hard to run down after the fact, because a lot of that financial, those financial records are missing. Um, but that's my sense of Joe. Uh, after, after the death of the Robinson family, he uh, purchased the business, immediately began 
borrowing money from anyone and everyone. He was pretty heavily in debt uh, shortly thereafter. And the business floundered and then went under. So that's a little bit about Joe. So I know Laura has a question here in a second, but <clears throat> when you when you talked about the the kind of the, the theory of making up these invest these shadow investors or these fake people, do you think is that Mr. Robart? Do you think did Joe make him up? So for people who are, there was this uh, this person that Mr. that Dick Robinson was saying was was basically going to be giving them him massive amounts of money that I think he was going to use to make the the family f- fabulously rich and build this business. But no one really knew who this person was. A Mr. A Mr. Robart is. I thought, did Joe make this guy up? I I'm absolutely sure he made this guy up. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, he never. That person never materialized. And there is some information um, which is detailed in the book about Joe going to a neighbor and paying a neighbor fifty bucks to make some of these phone calls. So yeah, I think he was fake. That's still just so crazy to me. I, I, as I was reading this book, I just kept thinking to myself, there's so much evidence here. There's everything points to Joe. Why, yeah. why did they just kind of, well, that's not enough. That's not enough. Like, I feel like in this day and age, if there's enough evidence, they'll just go arrest him. I mean, he failed polygraph after polygraph and just got to go home. Why do you think that was? Well, I, you know, I've asked a lot of people in Emmett County that, and they say that back then, A, Emmett County was just becoming known as a tourist destination and was, um, you know, businesses were popping up and, and the economy of the area was improving and they didn't want to do anything to mess up their tourism. And at the same time, they only had a part-time prosecutor who was on the verge of retiring and from what I hear, the, the officials in Emmett County did not want to indict Joe and have a trial unless it was a slam dunk. They didn't feel like it was a slam dunk, and they didn't want to spend the money to, um, to put on a trial that might not end in a guilty verdict. That's what I've heard from a number of sources in Emmett County, which is just, I mean, I would hope that that would never, ever happen today. And certainly, I don't think it would happen in Emmett um, or Grand Traverse or or, you know, any of the areas I'm familiar with up in northern Michigan. But at the time, um, no one was no one was ready for a case like this. You know, nobody could see something like this coming and they were ill-equipped to deal with it. Because there was no real physical evidence, right? But, I mean, there was a, a ton of things that made it seem pretty obvious, but there was no confession. There were no fingerprints. Um, they were never able to find the, the, the missing Beretta that matched the bullets, right? So there was, was that the kind of the hang up? Or at least that's what I, I took from it. Yeah, there was very little physical evidence. There were the shell casings at the scene. Um, and there was a couple bloody footprints also at the scene. But there was a window um, with bullet holes in it and then a note written on a paper towel and taped outside the door. But other than that, there was very little physical evidence until the Michigan State Police decided to take a metal detector and over Thanksgiving weekend go to a target shooting range owned by Joe Scalero's father-in-law, rope it off, and just cover the whole thing with a metal detector, which they did, and found shell casings at that target range that match shell casings recovered from the scene. Mm -hmm. To me, that should have been a slam dunk or at least enough for an arrest warrant. It's fascinating that in 1968, they're still able, or 69, still able 
to do that. I mean, to think people can get away yeah. with anything <laughs> when, when, when some police yeah. officers can take some metal detectors to a field and find the bullet, find bullets is amazing. I know. Well, and, and so that one of the detectives, one of the lead detectives on a, on the case is a guy named Lloyd Stearns. And Lloyd was one of the guys with the metal detector. And after they recovered that, he and his partner put together a hundred plus page um, case report and delivered it to Emmett County and said, you know, we want a warrant. We want you to arrest Joe. And that didn't happen. And just to give you an idea of how devoted Lloyd Stearns was to this case, on the 50th anniversary of, of the murders, Emmett County held uh, a big kind of, I guess you would call it symposium with a judge who was in his 80s, um, Lloyd, myself, and kind of a moderator. And we sat on a stage and answered questions from a pretty large audience. And Lloyd showed up um, late. He was in his late 80s by then. Sat down on the stage, no notes. And he talked about that case and answered every question as if it happened yesterday. I don't think he ever got over the fact that nobody was arrested for killing that family. Do you think uh, Joe acted alone or do you think there was any uh, weight behind that tip the prisoner gave on his buddy, uh, maybe possibly being involved as as a, as a trigger man or the driver or just as a second party involved yeah. in actually it, it carrying feels, it out. It feels, I guess, even because if he's a, a sharpshooter and he took him by surprise, it still feels that overtaking a, a family of six when, you know, four, you know, at least three of them are, are a grown man and high, you know, teenage boys um, seems like a, a hard thing for one person to do, but yeah. Yeah, I think that is one of the most frustrating aspects of of what we don't know is, um, you know, did he act alone or did he have help? I think at the very least he tried to get help. I'm not sure that he was successful in that, but I, I do think he tried to get people to help him. Um, there's some evidence of that. And, you know, a, a guy who was in um, prison in Kansas said that he was gave a lot of details on how he was approached. Uh, business owners in in Petoskey remember seeing some of these characters in town days before the murder. And yet I do think it's possible, considering Joe's experience, that he could have acted alone. I mean, you know, just imagine how how crazy things were inside of that cabin. And I, I believe Richard was the first one killed. Right. So he was taken out immediately. Um you know, I don't know. I don't do you, know. And I think that's one of the f- most frustrating things. What do you make of the luggage tag that turned up in that car years later? Yeah, I want to ask about that. Ah, that, that I weird. know it. Another, yeah, another thing. And was that just, you know, was that just random? Or does that add credence to this idea that where one of the P- Kansas prisoners said, yeah, we threw a, you know, we threw a suitcase full of guns Um you know, in a landfill was the luggage tag connected mm. to that. And then somehow it made it into a glove box and was then later found years later. I don't know. And I considered not putting that information about the luggage tag, not putting that in the book for that very reason. But then I thought, you know what, people who really know this case know about that luggage tag and they're going to go, mm-hmm. Oh, 
well, she forgot the luggage tag, you know, but there's, <laughs> there's a number of things like that with this case that just make it, um, just make it so perplexing. You could almost, you could almost see these guys and not to make light of it, but you could almost see these guys having just whoever it was committing this, this horrible crime say, Hey, let everyone's suitcases out. Cause they're going on this trip. Let's throw the guns in the suitcase and we'll take it out of there. And then getting halfway across Michigan and realizing that the victim's name tag was on the, the luggage. I'm like, well, maybe we should take that off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So a, another question, the, the, the judge, this struck me as weird when the, when the, the state police put forward their, their, you know, basically their case and the prosecutor said no. And then there was this, this old judge up there who like said, why don't you go check out Monty bliss? what's what's yeah. the what's the deal there was there like a personal thing between him and the, the two of them I, that's felt that felt random yeah i don't know if there if there was any personal animosity between the two of him but at the time Monty was kind of you know he was kind of an oddball he was he was introverted he was he had grown up there he was unusual he had a real he built many of those cottages in that you know in that blisswood in that that neighborhood where he built the Robinsons cottages, he and his father. And so, you know, it's easy to turn your attention on somebody who doesn't fit in. And I think Monty didn't fit in, but my sense is he had nothing to do with the crime or with the killings. He did. He was the person who discovered the body or bodies. And there was some conjecture on, well, if he knew that area so well, how could a month have gone by with him not knowing what had happened and yet I, I really think he was just kind of an unusual character that was easy to, who, you know, it was easy to point the finger at him. Yeah, he did come off as pretty strange. And then so on top of every, all the frustrating things that we've already talked about, the one deputy or whoever coming out with the hammer, like touching evidence, and then um, later on, like years later, trying to do the DNA evidence and having that not actually be able to bring anything forward I was when I was reading those things I was just like oh my gosh they can't catch a break must be so I know it it just feels like there were so many near misses yeah you know there were so many near misses in this case and just you know just our the, the human nature is we don't like things hanging out there we don't like a mystery especially when especially when kids are are involved in a family is involved. We want to know what happened and it just, it doesn't sit well. And especially when there were so many times when they came close to solving it, or they came close to making an arrest or they came close to having a break in the case. And yet n- nobody, you know, was ever called into account for it. Mm-hmm. Have, has anyone, and maybe this was part of that symposium, but has anyone with current technology ever kind of sat down with everything and said, if this had happened in 2021, this is what we would have done differently. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if like forensic files or somebody like that? That would be fascinating to see how would they apply today's technology to what they found back then? Yeah. I would love to see that happen. I've got two more questions. Um, The guy that had all their home movies digitized and sat there and watched all of them. Has his book come out yet? Cause you mentioned that he was working on like a manifesto on this and also who did he think did it? His book has not come out. Um, Al Kosky has since died. I did meet one of his daughters once and um, said, you know, anytime you want to forward those file cabinets full of stuff to me, 
just let me know. I will pay for the shipping. I will come and pick it up myself. <laughs> but I've never heard, you know, I've never heard anything since. I do know that, um, you know, there were no, the, the closest survivors of the Robinson family now are cousins of the children. And there are three sisters who I'm in contact with. And they did, with my help, get those movies back. Um, but they had a lot of angst over the fact that he held on to those for so long. Um, and, you know, I, I'm sure that he was a, an incredible reporter. He was an cre- incredible researcher. And I'm sure he has information that no one else has. And it sure would be nice if it would be shared. Do you know who he was leaning towards as being the, the person who carried it out? Does he also think it was Joe? Yeah. Or, okay. He did. Okay. Yeah, he did. It's funny. Every time I keep looking around the room and go, okay, I got one more question, more questions pop up and I, <laughs> yeah. and I'm yeah. going to break my own rule. I have one more question <laughs> um, before kind of the grand finale question. So in the, the afterward of the book, you talk about, and I'm going to blank on his name now, but the guy who was the polygraph um, administrator who had, when he interviewed Joe years and years earlier, after the machine had been turned off, he knew that he knew that he had done it, but right. He, he heard the story. He didn't believe the story and kind of told, said to Joe, you know, just, you know, want just confess. And he smiles. Yeah. And so then years later, he's, he's retired. The, the polygraph guy's retired. He's up North. He's living outside Traverse city, a few, <laughs> 10 miles from you. I know you said you're trying to hunt him down and found out that he lived 10 miles away. Um, and a person named Joe calls and leaves a message with his son that says, tell him that he's right. Or Joe called and tell him he's right. Um, and then that was the day that Joe Sclero had committed suicide. Did anyone, yeah. I mean, obviously that call happened. Did anyone ever look at phone records? Could, was that ever verified that phone call? Not that I know of. And the only reason I know that story is because I was on a radio program and that polygraph examiner uh, called the radio program and said, I'm not going to tell you this story on the air, but I will tell it to you. And we talked later, but not that I know of. Nobody has ever, you know, um, there's never been a subpoena for those phone records. Um, You know, I can't file a FOIA request for them because they're private. Mm -hmm. So it would take law enforcement to, to ask for those if they still exist. Yeah, that, was, a, that was the first thing when I read that. I'm like, I wonder if those uh, those phone records are still out there. Yeah. Let's go podcast team. Let's Too go bad find you them. weren't on the case. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Okay, so last, last one. Do you think, will anything ever come up, do you think, that will allow law enforcement to officially close this case? I think there is an opportunity if Joe either told someone about this case or had help and that person is still alive, I think there's an opportunity for a confession now or a deathbed confession. And other than that, I'm skeptical that, that the case can ever be closed. Well, when evil came to good heart is the name of the book. I think everyone should read it, especially the the cool, cool thing. I hate using words like that one. It's, it's interesting when you live in Michigan and you've been to these places to read a story about things that happened in these places. And I find that that's always fascinating. And so, especially if you're a Michigan person, you'll, you'll know where she's talking about when she's describing these things. So get the book. I wouldn't recommend that you read it in the village of Goodheart late at night uh, necessarily, <laughs> but I definitely think you should. Um, Marty Link, the author, thanks so much for being with us on the Cold Oatmeal Podcast. Thanks for having me and happy Halloween. Thanks. Take care. <laughs>
Halloween He can be seen Dancing to and fro Play your bones Skeleton In the mist He will insist On a long solo Play your bones Skeleton that was fun. Sm- spooky. Was that spooky was super was that spooky. <laughs> that was great. I, I, I could, we could have had questions forever. Yeah, I, I feel bad for people who haven't read the book. It, it, we could just kind of right. talk it through forever, but um, it's still I feel like inter- it was a good overview though. Yeah. It's still interesting to read it. Even like you guys were talking about it yesterday when I was only halfway done and I was still super into it when I was getting mm-hmm. through the book. Mm-hmm. So, cause you have hopes that they would have missed something like right. Matt said that we'll see it records. Maybe they did miss something yeah. that could be solved. I always, I mean, I mentioned this when we talked to her, I, I I'm always so interested when I'm reading stories about things that happen here or a place that I've been. And I can picture exactly where these things were happening. Like the part where he's talking to the, he goes to the Oakland County airport and I'm like, I, I've, I've been there. I know. I kind of know exactly where that guy is standing for this conversation. It's just, it's mm-hmm. all fascinating stuff. I'm talking about Cobo hall and the, the convention there and, mm-hmm. and so yeah anyway so we are we all agreed do we think joe did it either, oh yeah, either yeah. Or so. yeah. Did for sure yeah. did it or, or it. paid someone to do it but he sounds like such a sharpshooter i think he at least was one of the shooters knew where they lived like yeah he definitely it all lines up he was there i hadn't heard the part where they thought they'd come from the water though yeah that was, that, that was i don't think that was in the book okay i don't think so either that, that was seems, interesting. To that me. seems skeptical to me, just because Lake Michigan is so. You can't hard. just dock where it's, you want to, right? And it's not predictable. I mean, it could be calm, and you could just boat right on up, but it could not be, and yeah. it could be a lot harder to do that. It's weird. So, it makes me want to go. I want to go. The spot. I do. Let's road trip. Let's. <laughs> we'll pack up the stuff in the car. We can talk the whole way there. On we can record it. We can record the whole thing while we're going. That's interesting. We can stop oh at shorts God. on the way and yeah, get lunch there you go. and Full beers. Yep. And then, I think this is a really good idea. And then keep going and keep going. And, and we could go find the go find, find the next murder. Well, let's focus on this one first. Okay. Let's go. Let's go. We got to lock this one down. You're yeah. right. I'm then. sorry. We have to solve this one. We can do it. And the, it's a beautiful time of year. The leaves are changing. It is. It would be a good time yeah. for a road trip. We could go. Probably not a great time to find a Beretta in the woods if it's covered up in leaves, but we'll, we can. From 1968. We'll figure it out. Yeah. We'll do it. We'll find it. Okay. I have faith in us. So next episode will be on the road. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we can all get those we fancy little headsets. Fresh. Like Stephanie has. Joe's, yeah, Joe's, so we can yeah. Joe's migraine just went through the roof with that. Yeah. Rest strategies, public happen. affairs, public relations, and murder mysteries. On the road. Call us. <laughs> to, send road. your tips to at Cold Oatmeal Pod. Do you have a murder you want us to solve? We could do it. <laughs> <laughs> we will figure it out. We'll figure it I'll out. I'll keep an eye on the Twitter just in case it pops Thanks. up. Thank you. I don't know if I should be alarmed at like how into this kind of book I am. Like when we read Shana's book, whenever that was last year or whatever, yeah, I, you like that I really liked that too. And I really like this and I, I watch a lot, a lot of law and order. Are. Like, yeah, but is it morbid to be like podcasts about this maybe kind it's of morbid, so but what's wrong popular? with that? <laughs> <laughs> it is changes up your everyday life. That just means you have a good life. Okay. I think okay. it's balanced. That's good. <laughs> okay. So Marty Link was our guest. She was the author of when evil comes to good heart, go to Amazon, check it out, buy copies. 
it's a great great book um it's, it's a quick read but for anyone who's either like true crime stories or michigan um especially northern michigan it's a, a fascinating uh, story to read uh, and it was great to talk to her anything else to add we good I happy concur. halloween okay <laughs> for uh nikki Boo. Oh. <laughs> oh you got him <laughs> did put me off <laughs> nikki laura Carly, scary Carly. <laughs> That's just a theme for this season, I think. <laughs> and, and Joe, this has been Matt. This has been the Cold Oatmeal Podcast. And we'll talk to you next time. Base on a leg bone, middle on hips, treble on ribs, what a tone. That melody put a chill in me, but I'm sad when he has to go. All the ghouls dance like fools. See them twist and moan Play your bones Skeleton Skeleton